Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from RNZ Sport. I'm Matt Chatterton. In the program this week, are Wales done for or can they resurrect their tour in the second test against the All Blacks? The Ford Factory team is returning to Le Mans in force to mark the 50th anniversary of its first Le Mans win. New Zealand driver Chris Amon reflects on that famous victory. And Christchurch mechanic Francis Buckley makes history in pit lane at the V8 Supercar Series. Lydia Ko had to settle for second at the latest golf major, but her stature in the game continues to grow. Shopporter Tom Walsh puts his Rio opponents on notice, and 180. The International Darts Roadshow hits Auckland. A mentally drained All Blacks wing Julian Savia has been dropped for Saturday night's second test against Wales. Savia has been given a break to get his head right after failing to find the form he produced at last year's World Cup. Our rugby reporter Joe Porter reports. The All Blacks coach Steve Hansen says Savia is in top physical condition but the selectors believe the blockbusting wing is bogged down mentally. We just felt that a little bit of time out of the playing 15 wouldn't do him any harm. So, you know, his game wasn't, isn't reflecting the work he's putting in. So when you see him training really well and then they go and have a performance which is clunky and pretty wooden, uh, you, you can usually tell without having to be a psychologist that there's something going on. Savia's sidelining means Israel Dagg is back in the All Blacks starting 15 after being overlooked for last year's World Cup. He'll start at fullback with Ben Smith switching to the right wing and Wasaki Naholo to the left. Dagg will bring up his 50th test on Saturday night, though he concedes he thought he wouldn't make it past 49. Last year you kind of think, oh yeah, well, time's up. But then I had to sit down and take, take a deep breath and... Um, just reassess things and yeah, it's awesome to be back in this environment and be given another opportunity. The All Blacks blew Wales off the park in the final 20 minutes of the first test, turning a tight contest into a one-sided scoreline. And after the Chiefs put 40 points on Wales on Tuesday, most pundits are expecting another lopsided result in the second test in Wellington. However, Hanson doesn't see it that way. They're a good team and they're hurting right now. That makes them dangerous and I said earlier they'll be pissed off and uh, when you're pissed off it doesn't take much to get your mental side of your game right. So they'll, they'll front up in a big way I think on Saturday. The veteran Wales midfielder Jamie Roberts says the Chiefs game was an embarrassment and he insists the Welsh Dragon will breathe fire in Wellington. We owe the jersey a, a game, there's no doubt about that. You know the lads who wore that jersey on Tuesday let the jersey down really uh, it wasn't good enough so we owe the jersey a performance and certainly the Welsh supporters a, a performance. One Wales player who's hoping to ignite his side is Rhys Patchell. The Cardiff Blues back wasn't initially selected in the Wales squad but was pulled off a golf course in Northern Wales to start against the All Blacks at fullback in just his third international.
I was actually driving to North Wales with my housemates when I got a phone call off Caroline telling me that I'd probably be required but thought that I'd be flying Sunday. Then got a phone call when we were on the first tee at Nevin Golf Club saying, leave the boys in North Wales. So I left my two housemates stranded on the first tee, jumped in the car, drove back to Cardiff, got picked up at five o'clock, tried to stay awake as long as I could, so I didn't get any jet lag. Patchell certainly faces a tough task, with a tired Wales side unlikely to trouble the All Blacks, who produced a rusty performance in the first test, but still won by 18 points. In Wellington, for extra time, Joe Porter. Now, not many people are picking Wales to upset the history books, not even their own fans, as our reporter Max Toll found out. The All Blacks kick off against Wales at Cardiff Arms Park, straight into a dazzling sun that won't help them much in this rugby classic. Wales have been playing the All Blacks for more than 100 years. In 31 matches, they've won only three times, most recently in 1953. They gave it a good effort in the first half during last week's test at Eden Park, but still ended up getting thrashed 39-21. No one's giving them much of a chance tomorrow, not least of all these Wellington punters. Ah, All Blacks all day. Uh, not really. Not looking at the All Blacks' performance. I think they've got some good talent, but the issue is 80 minutes. Like, they probably put in a good fight, but like, I'll still go for All Blacks. They've come out. They're just lacking that level of expertise. They haven't got the backup off the bench. They really had their best chance last week. Not everyone is writing off the Welsh yet, though. Oh, sure, mate. Ball's a funny shape. Anything can happen on the day. It's the first time the two sides have met in the capital. But as for their chances... Even the Welsh team's coach, Warren Gatland, is staying cautious. We're going to come out and, despite people saying we're going to kick everything and try and stifle the All Blacks, we said that we were going to come out and play some rugby and you've to compete against the best teams, you've got to be positive. Mayor Celia Wade-Brown helped welcome the team with a porphyry at Pipitia Marae on Wednesday. She says the city is buzzing. I remember to say Borada and check my pronunciation. Some of them were returning, like the captain, Sam Warburton, but some of them, it was the first time they'd been to New Zealand and they were just so happy to be here. They thought it was a really beautiful place and welcoming. Um, we just didn't talk about the scores so far. But more importantly, who's going to win? Oh, head and heart, say New Zealand win. The Welsh Dragon Bar bills itself as the only Welsh bar in the Southern Hemisphere. Surely there are some optimistic fans there. No, history's definitely not on our side, but that has to change at some point. I mean, the heart tells me, yeah, we're going to win, but the head says, uh, I think it'll be the All Blacks again, I'm afraid. We always have a chance. Wales are a very inconsistent uh, team on times. And I'll be there shouting, Wales, Wales, Wales. So God help anybody who's sitting in front of me. Surely there are some optimistic fans there. The bar is co-owned by Joanna Howard, who has lived in New Zealand for 28 years. We've got the passion that the Kiwis haven't got. That's what gets us through a lot of it. We were hoping if we were going to do it, it would have been last Saturday. I think we've lost our chance maybe now, but we still hope. Hope is all Wales seem to have in front of a sold-out Westpac Stadium. The odds may be stacked against them, but there's one thing Joanna Howard says will remain intact after Saturday night. Their optimism. There's no further score, so Wales have done it by 13 points to eight. After all, they did it in 1953. Next toll with that report. The IndyCar champion Scott Dixon will fulfil a long-held ambition this weekend when he swaps America's racetracks to lead a Ford Challenge at the 24 Hours of Le Mans race in France. The Ford factory team is returning to Le Mans in force to mark the 50th anniversary of its Le Mans win and a famous day in New Zealand sporting history, when Bruce McLaren and Chris Amon won the race in a black GT40 with a silver fern on its flanks. Chris Amon spoke to Morning Report's Susie Ferguson. 
obviously it's a long time ago now. I've been sitting around for the last few weeks thinking, when did the last 50 years ago? But um, no, it was, uh, it was and remains a, a very special day in my life. Um, and I think it was a, probably a special day in, um, in motorsport for, the, for New Zealand too. Uh, it, um, um, I mean, Bruce McLaren had won Grand Prix prior to that, but um, <clears throat> as it, it's certainly up there as one of the motorsport, New Zealand motorsports achievements, I guess. So a bit of a bright day, and then for New Zealand, decades and decades without drivers competing at that level. Yes, um, yes, unfortunately, um, it uh, it was um, something that um, I guess was inevitable, really, in that um, I got into international motorsport because we had um, teams coming out here in the um, sort of European or Northern Hemisphere winter, and... Um, to do, compete in the series out here, not not a complete Grand Prix field or anything, but we had team managers who'd come out with these people and mm. um, somebody who was sort of, um, you know, in the field to make up the field, as it were, such as myself at age sort of 18. <laughs> if, if you had some talent, you got noticed. And, uh, and that all sort of disappeared in the... Um, in the sort of early 70s, really, and mm. um, there, there was very little opportunity for people to, um, you know, to get noticed. And um, it's only in um, sort of in, in recent years, um, really, with the advent of the Toyota Racing Series, that uh, uh, guys have had a, or people have had a chance to compete. Um, um, against visiting internationals again, so it's um, opened up a whole um, whole new thing. Now a real swag of New Zealanders, and Brandon Hartley has a pretty special helmet for the race, <laughs> yeah. doesn't he? What's he got on his helmet? He's um, he's got a photograph of um, <coughs> of Bruce McLaren and myself, um, one on each side of the helmet, and he's. Uh, the sort of centre strip is my my old helmet colour, so uh, I was uh, uh, very taken aback and very honoured when he rang me and said, um, "Would I mind if he did that?" And um, I, I said, "No, go for it." <laughs> well, also Brendan Hartley aiming for outright victory in a Porsche, I think it is. Yes. Uh, yeah. Now it's a, the race itself. 24-hour race, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, it's something um, special. I think I did it 11 times and I only finished it once. So um, what does it take to win? What's he going to need to do? Um, there's, inevitably, there's an element of luck in, in winning. Uh, you've got 60 or 70 cars in the field. I'm not quite sure how many this year, but it'll be around that sort of number. You've got to... Um, it's, it's a touch easier, though, these days, isn't it? Because when you did it, it's, what, two drivers doing the 24-hour race of, what, four hours at a, a stretch, but it's three drivers now. Yes, they're a bit spoiled. They've even, some of them have even got air conditioning. Oh! <laughs> Which, what an easy life they get. Exactly, and power steering, too. We had none of, the, none of those luxuries. But uh, 
the the difficulties are um, because you've got different classes, you've got huge speed differentials, and especially at night, it's very difficult to judge how fast the car that you're catching up to is going. Um, the the other uh, difficulties are the sort of dawn and dusk um, mm. f- features where you've got sort of half an hour. It's really difficult to see. The lights are not working, but it's, well, are not showing up, but it's not really light enough either to see properly. Mm. Um, so there's all sorts of things that can... Um, um, come into it, and apart from the durability of the car as well, obviously. Chris Amon talking to Susie Ferguson. Staying with motorsport and the New Zealand mechanic Frances Buckley will become the first woman to head up a pit lane crew in the Australasian V8 supercar competition at this weekend's round in Darwin. Buckley, from Oxford near Christchurch, was recently appointed head mechanic for the Erebus motorsport team. Erebus is owned by Betty Clemenko, who became the first woman to own a team when Erebus entered the V8 competition in 2013. Buckley has been back home this weekend and talked to sports editor Stephen Houston about her rise in the very much male-dominated world of motorsport. When I was 18, I went overseas and I worked for an Olympic horse rider for Australia and loved it, but realised that I couldn't do this job and enjoy the passion on the horses, so then that's how I went the mechanic way, because I had an interest in cars and... That's sort of all where it started from. I never thought when I was at school that I was going to be a mechanic. I was going to represent New Zealand on some horses. <laughs> so you started out as an apprentice mechanic? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've only ever done motorsport on the side until now. And you got into motorsport at what point? Um, well, I actually had some friends that were involved in motorsport and um, I met one of the uh, engine builders and he sort of said if I ever wanted to get into motorsport, give him a call and... Kind of didn't really think much of it because I was doing my apprenticeship and yeah and then one day I thought oh, I'll give him a call and went along to an NZV8 round and been doing it ever since. Were there many other women involved? No, when I got into it it was uh, very tough. Like, no one wanted to hire me. I had people ring me up about my CV and they'd be asking for a Mr Buckley and I'd say no, um, it's me, Francis and they'd be like oh, oh we've got the wrong number, sorry and hang up on me. And what, what what year are we talking about there? Oh, that would have been 12 years ago, 13 so that, years ago. Not not that long ago, that that approach, well, is, is it still around? No, I think it's getting better than what it was. It's becoming more acceptable. There's more females you see out and about now and getting into trades and stuff. What about in the, in the racing industry? How, how did you find cracking that? Well, I was lucky because I met someone and that's how I got into it. Um, you know, people would just look at me at the start and think, oh, what's she doing here? But now in New Zealand, if I didn't turn up to a race meeting, I'd get phone calls asking where I was. And in Australia, was it was it tougher? One might expect that uh, the, the chauvinism might have been a, a little stronger. Yeah, I had done a few rounds in supercars before, um, just helping teams out when they were short, but most of the full-time jobs, I was told that I was too small or too this to do the, do the job. And what is it that, that you love about it so much? Is it the smell, the sound, the noise, all of it? Yeah, the adrenaline. Just, yeah, going out and seeing a car do well on the track, it makes it all worth it. And this new role with Erebus Motorsport, you're pretty much going to be, what, head of things on pit lane? Yeah, head of the cars. It's a big jump for me. 
the car is totally now my responsibility, so I'm overlooking uh, the number two and the number three to make sure they're doing the job right and, yeah, just making sure when that car leaves the garage that it's up to a standard that it's going to be good. If any car comes in, then I've got to make a call on what we're going to do if something's broken or whatever like that. You're looking forward to that? Does that, that pressure presumably builds too? Yeah, I think it'll be good. Good for me to learn this new new role. But yeah, I think first few rounds it might be a bit stressful because I'm be my first time doing it, running it. But no, I'm looking forward to the new challenge. Formula One ever something you'd like to get involved in, or, or what? What's the future hold? Formula One personally doesn't actually interest me. I like a tin top kind of car, not an open wheeler. So you're a, a genuine petrol head. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Erebus Motorsport head mechanic Francis Buckley talking to sports editor Stephen Hewson. Lydia Ko, the world's number one, so often hailed as extraordinarily young to be doing so very well. She's been beaten by an even younger woman in a sudden death playoff at the Women's PGA Championship in Washington earlier this week. It was the New Zealanders' chance to win a third straight major title, but Canadian golfer Brooke Henderson, who's just 18 years old, beat the 19-year-old Ko on the first playoff hole to become the second youngest major champion in history, behind Ko. Ko had been the clear favourite going into the final day, but she says while she's happy with her performance, it just wasn't good enough on the day. I'm happy with the way I played. Um, you know, I just got outplayed, and uh, now even just down that playoff hole, for her to go that tiger line, you know, right for the pin, and you know, to have the perfect yardage, you know, she just played great. And uh, I'm proud of the way I played, uh, but you know, in this case, I just got outplayed. Lydia Coe's coach David Ledbetter told Checkpoint's John Campbell that her final round was pretty good, but he agreed that on the day, Brock Henderson was even better. Well, I mean, it, when you listen, it's not all what one what a player does. It's obviously what your opposition does. And Brooks Henderson played fantastically well. I mean, to shoot six under, I mean, I mean, I think anybody would have said if, if Lydia had shot four under to start the day, I mean, uh, you know, that she would have wanted it at canter. Uh, it just goes to show the quality of the play. And uh, Brooks Henderson just, I mean, it's her day, uh, her time. And, uh, I mean, she... She holds some amazing putts, uh, and uh, as I say, unfortunately, you know, some things are out of your control. I mean, Lydia did all she had to do. I mean, yeah, she missed a short putt on 17, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, that's the way it goes, and, I mean, she's, she can hold her head up high. I mean, she really gave it a good go, and, uh, you know, you sort of midway through the back nine, you'd say, well, I think she's probably pretty much odds on, but, yeah. you know, that's that's the game of golf. Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, if, if, if you look at the... If you look at those top three players, I mean, those probably that's that's the you're looking right into the future of the game right there, you know, with Brooks Henderson and Lydia and uh, Aria Jatanagan. I mean, they're all you know about the same age, and uh, I mean, just amazing, amazing talents. And uh, you know, Lydia just didn't come out on top today. You know, there's so much to talk about because I, I want to discuss these formidable young women and their extraordinarily cool heads. But can, can we begin with Lydia and, and the sense that actually when she doesn't win now, everyone kind of thinks, oh, you know, wow. Because uh, Lydia has been so good and so consistently good that we're just expecting it. And it is a contest and there are other people who want to win and we have to remind ourselves of that. Well, we do. And uh, as I say, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly not a... It's, it's, you know, golf, that's, that's the way golf is. I mean, you look at Jack Nicklaus, he had, you know, he won 18 majors, but he had 19 seconds. So, you know, you, you, ultimately you're gonna, you're gonna lose more than you win. And, uh, it was, 
you know, it came down to it. I mean, it wasn't obviously, uh, yeah, certainly her last tournament, the ANA, when she won that. I mean, she hit a tremendous shot the last hole, but and the Evian, you go back to that one where she pretty much won, did win at a counter. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, there were a lot of people in the mix. I mean, there were a lot of players who, you know, for a period of time, and uh, and it just came down to the fact that, uh, you know, Brooks just played that a little bit better. I mean, she yeah. holds, she obviously holds a tremendous putt on the last hole to, you know, to save par. And uh, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the fascinating thing is I, I think this will make Lydia stronger. I think mm. a player of her... Um, ability level uh, needs competition and uh, I mean she's going to have it from these girls and I think it'll just push her to uh, to another level uh, it'll just make her work that much harder and uh, I mean you know it wasn't like a Jordan Spieth collapse like at Augusta nothing nothing of those no, no. Nothing. I mean she hit you know she hit most of the greens and most of the fairways and shot four under par on an extremely difficult golf course and you know she just came up one shy and uh, well I mean basically well you know, she didn't come up one shy, actually. I mean, she obviously lost in the playoff. And, uh, you know, when you birdie the playoff hole, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do. So she did all she could do. And, you know, just put her hands up and say, hey, you know, the, the better person won today. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, the great Gary player would always call. You know, he, he, he has a lot more wins. Because he says, "Hey, if you get in the playoffs, it's, it's a win in my book." You know, I mean, because we both shot the lowest scores, you know, so yeah. in regulation play. But uh, as I say, you know, it'll be. I'm sure. I mean, she'll look back, and uh, I mean, at the end of her career, she's going to look back, and she's going to have a few near misses. It's just, you know, she hasn't had any up to this point in time, and so it's a bit of a shock to the system. But uh, <laughs> she's going to have a she's going to yeah. have a couple of near misses, and uh, so you know, I don't think it's going to dent her confidence any. Whatsoever. I mean, she played great this week. I mean, uh, I mean, she did all she could do, and uh, you know, just came up just a, that little bit short. D- David, I know you're racing off, but can I ask you one final question about the temperament of these remarkable young women? They are. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you can learn technique. I'm abysmal at golf, so I can't comment on this at all. But I'm sure you can be taught. You, you know how to do the physical things, but their level-headedness, their composure, their ability to get on top of the nerves and the occasion is so formidable, isn't it? At such young ages, yeah, really incredible. I mean, you, you always you've heard in the past that it takes players a number of years to mature, not just physically or technically, but mentally more than anything else. That these young women, I mean, they're so far uh, ahead of their peers of a different era. It's amazing. I mean, they're just, I mean, it is. It's, it's incredible. I mean, we know Lydia. I mean, she's, you know, she's got such an old head on a young yes. pair of shoulders. Uh, and, you know, nothing, nothing seems to phase them. And it's like, it's, uh, I mean, it, it is. It's, it, they're, they're great role models. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you've got sort of three international players, you know, New Zealand, Canada, and Thailand. And, uh, I mean, it just goes to show what a global game the sport is. And, uh, you know, the exciting thing is these three are going to be tussling for a long mm-hmm. time. And uh, we've got some great tournaments coming up. And I think the Olympics could be uh, one heck of a one heck of an event because they're all, they're all playing. Lydia Coe's golf coach there, David Ledbetter, talking to Checkpoint's John Campbell. The New Zealand shot putter Tom Walsh has put his rivals on notice just two months out from the Rio Olympics, comfortably winning this week's Diamond League event in Stockholm. Walsh threw 21.13 metres to win by more than half a metre from his nearest rival. 
Although current world champion American Joe Kovacs wasn't competing as he's preparing for the upcoming US Olympic trials. Despite his success though, Walsh told sports editor Stephen Hewson he's far from satisfied. It's always good to get a Diamond League win in the belt. Um, my second in my, my career as well, so uh, pretty happy with that. And uh, yeah, just slightly frustrated about, um, you know, not just I didn't quite line one up today, which was slightly disappointing. I felt like I was in good rhythm and good timing, um, but just didn't quite get fully behind one. Um, but, you know, to, to throw that consistently well, you know, around the 21 metre mark, uh, I'm pretty happy about. Because, well, he had four throws over 21 metres. Yeah, mate. Yeah, I did. So, you know, it was really good to have this, that type of consistency. But, um, yeah, I was just over-rotating a little bit at the front of the circle, which means, uh, you know, all your power is not going through the shot. It's kind of going around it. Um, but, you know, at least at least I know what's going wrong. Um, and there's not a hell of a lot going wrong either. It's just little bits and pieces and wee bits of timing here and there. It sends out a message ahead of Rio, does it? Yeah, look, it's it's uh, it's good to throw this this consistently this this far away from it. Um, I'm only going to get fresher between now and Rio, and and uh, and, and technically better with getting fresher as well. So uh, my next comp's in London uh, in about a month. Uh, so hopefully I can I can do some good things there and and start to throw um, some really good distances. As I just touched on earlier, it's not far away, mate. It's uh, you know I'm knocking on the door. It's it's you know it's, it's centimeters away. Um, and, you know, all it can take is one good practice and, and things start lining up a lot more. And, um, you know, we could be um, in, some, uh, in for some pretty good throws. What do you think you're capable of? <laughs> That's a million-dollar question, isn't it, mate? Um, look, uh, I think to be competitive at Rio, uh, you're going to have to throw 2150-plus um, to be within a shot of middles. And then, you know, I think around the 22-metre mark is, is what you're going to need to to throw to, to, to get gold. So, look, I believe that I'm, I am capable of the 22-metre kind of mark this year. Um, and and this year, things are going better than... And I'm throwing further and training's going better than, than what it was at the same time last year. So, uh, you know, I'm feeling pretty confident to get pretty close, if not go over that 22-metre mark. Now, no, no Kovacs at this competition. What what did mm. that? What sort of did that go through your mind? What what impact did that have? Oh mate, I think he's scared. No, um, look, uh, he's throwing really well at the moment, but um, it was it was uh, you know they've got trials in, in two weeks' time, which is which is more important for them in terms of getting into their Olympic team. Um, so look, it was a little bit of a shame that, that he wasn't around, but at the same point in time, you know, uh, you got to take those wins when you can. And it was a slightly easier win, um, you know, today, but uh, you still got to be there and you still got to do it. So uh, I'm pretty happy with the result. Just slightly annoyed that I didn't quite, you know, nail it home um, in the last three or four throws. Shot porter Tom Walsh talking to sports editor Stephen Hewson. And finally, the Auckland Darts Masters returns this weekend for the second year running. After a warm reception from the New Zealand fans last year, the Professional Darts Corporation and all its stars are back. I went and caught up with the men who transformed darts from a pub sport into a global phenomenon. Since the Professional Darts Corporation's inception in 1992, the sport of darts has exploded on the world scene. From what started as local tournaments throughout the UK and Europe, the PDC now sells out tournaments in America, China, Japan, Dubai and Australia. This weekend it's Auckland's turn, so I asked PDC's Chief Executive Matthew Porter how darts became such a big spectator sport. The sport now is, is fast-paced, the players are characters, 
Uh, it's full of action. It's um, it's a game which anybody can play. You know, there's no boundaries to entry. You don't need a lot of space. You don't need a lot of time or equipment or money. Um, and people can relate to it. It's normal guys off the street who play a game that they can understand for a lot of money and they enjoy watching it. Darts' working man image is personified by its best competitors. Before he became a 16-time world champion, Phil the Power Taylor made ceramic toilet roll handles. Now Taylor has made over $12 million in his career and is a worldwide name. He says darts' success comes down to its simplicity. Uh, it's an easy game to follow. It's a simple game to follow. You know, it's not one of these games where there's offside rules or there's this, that and the other. So it's easy for kids and, and ladies to watch and... You know, any age group, really. And I think it's a, it's a sport anybody can do. Squaring Taylor up, I thought I'd challenge him to a match. He had other ideas. Coming out here, do you have people on the streets saying to you, challenge you at a game of darts? Has anyone ever tried to? No, no, no. They, they, they come and ask for autographs and photographs. That's what, that's what you get. Would you challenge anyone in particular if they gave you a request for a game? No. Damn. No, in case they beat me. Damn. I was going to hit you up for a challenge, but in that case, I'll, uh, no. oh, bug it, bug it. So if the 16-time world champion wouldn't challenge me, my next bright idea was the current world number one, Michael Van Gerwen. Uh, if I may ask, can you do it left-handed just to make me give me a better chance? Yeah, yeah, just, you can have six darts and me three, yeah? All right, okay, then, yeah, sounds good. Okay, all right, good. okay, okay, all right. You, I'll go first then. All right. This oh. is going to be a disaster. Yeah. All right. Uh. Full of confidence, the game got off to a promising start with an 18. However, I was brought back down to earth quickly. I followed it up with three ones, a no throw, and a 12 to end on 33. That, that, that was shocking. That was shocking. So all the world's best player had to do was beat 33 with three darts. I didn't rate my chances. Ah, oh, damn it. I was looking so promising there, so promising. Well, that went about as well as planned. Darts hasn't just made its players global stars either. Russell Bray is an official referee for the PDC, and his dulcet tones are almost as famous as the players he calls. The 180, that's, you know, you can hear that ringing in my head right now. How, how much do you practice that? Is that something you've been practicing? I don't, I don't practice it, I, I really, really don't. Um, I mean, I get also obviously, yeah. by you guys an awful lot of times, yeah, yeah, you yeah. get an interview, and I go, oh yeah, come on, Russell, he's doing some 180. Um, but, you know, when the first two darts go in there, and you're on the stage, and you're looking at it, Take a little deep breath now, and, and the third one goes in there. You hear the crowd sort of coming up, we're in there and waiting for it, and then you, then you just rattle it out, you know. And it's, uh, it's, it's a great person. And I do have to ask, could you do it for us one time, please? Of course I will. Thank you. eighty. No doubt, plenty of that will be heard at the Trust Arena in Henderson this weekend, when the world's best take on some of the local talent for the title of Auckland Darts Masters Champion. And that's extra time for this week. Your feedback is always welcome via Twitter at RNZ Sport or our emails sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Matt Chitterton. Bye for now. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. 
every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.